banded together by a mutual yearning for the more simplistic times and random fun of the comic books of yesteryear. Alec Berry and Scott Gardner now travel back. Back to the bins! Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 5 of Back to the Bins. My name is Alec Berry. And my name is Scott Gardner. And before we get into the usual discussion of a random back issue, uh, me and Scott would like to lay down a ground rule for you listeners at home. Thought it would be a good idea, and um, the the topic came off of up of uh, how old should we go back with our back issues? What 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 would call what would qualify to be a part of this show? And uh, we've been discussing it. And oh, do you want to give a give the idea, Scott? Yeah, I, I think the idea basically is, I, I personally, I would say a back issue to me is something that's three or more years old. Because more than likely, you know, most comic shops these days, you know, the, the few that still exist, seem like, you know, they, they've got a pretty good stock of stuff from like the last, you know, year to two years. But you get much further back beyond three years and, and it starts to get sketchy, you know. And so I don't know. I, I've just, I've for some reason, three years is always that number that sticks in my head for what's truly a back issue, and not something that you know I, I feel confident that I could, you know, run to the LCS and and just happen to find it, you know, still on the wall or, you know, something like that. So yeah, we we decided to go with about three years. So in this case, we're looking at you know mid two thousand five or thereabouts and, and further back. You know anything. Plus the fact that, you know, anything newer than that, you're more than likely going to be able to find a podcast that's already talked about it because most, you know, of, of the big uh, comic podcasts, you know, have been around that long now. So, yeah. you know, we want to talk about stuff that, that maybe hasn't been spotlighted yet or, or touched upon at all because they're just, you know, there isn't a specific show about it or, you know, they just hadn't gotten around to it yet. So that's kind of the idea anyway. Yeah, you make a good point there about the podcast thing. I never actually thought about that, but yeah. So, 2005 and uh, pre that year, anything is up for grabs. So, I'm going to pass it off to you, Scott, and uh, you get into your book. Excellent. Well, this one here is one that uh, I picked up because I've been hunting it for the longest time. Hunting it on the cheap, of course, because I am, after all, a cheap uh, SOB. And I finally was able to track it down. I forget how much I paid, but it was only a couple bucks at most, which is perfect for me. And uh, this is one that's uh, got a lot of history to it, so I'm, I'm hoping that uh, there'll be a lot of interest in it. This is Green Lantern, third series, number 49, from February of 1994. And if that doesn't necessarily ring a bell with you, this is part two of the Emerald Twilight story in which Hal Jordan went bonkers and decided that he was going to basically round up all of the uh, the power of the Guardians and all the rings and everything that he could, and he was going to resurrect uh, Coast City. And basically he was going to set things right, because uh, Coast City had been destroyed a couple issues before this. Number 46, I think, as part of the Reign of the Superman story where Mongol... Uh, destroyed Coast City and all that. So anyway, this one's written by uh, Ron Mars and uh, penciled. I was surprised. I You know, this is, of course, my first time reading this issue. 
Um, and I was surprised to find out that it was penciled by a guy named Fred Haynes, who I am totally unfamiliar with. I thought that it was, uh, oh gosh, who's the guy? I can't think of his name now. I've just totally blanked on the artist that I expected was going to be the artist on this book. It was the one that came along within an issue or two of this and was like the big Green Lantern artist through all the, uh, the, uh, Kyle Rayner stuff. Anyway, maybe his name will come back to me. Inks on this by Romeo Tangal and uh, Dennis Kramer. It was another name I'm not necessarily familiar with. This issue is just really cool. It starts right off, and it's you know, right into the action right off the bat. You know, you got a great splash page, head-on shot of just one super scary-looking Hal Jordan, you know, flying directly at you, the reader. You know, he's just got this intense, really scary look on his face. And he comes immediately up into a double splash page on the on the next page on pages two and three, and he's going up against uh, Kehan and Jade, who you know are, are some lanterns that you know I had I remember first seeing in the uh, the Sinestro Corps. If I ever saw them before that, I don't remember them, and I was really surprised to see them here because I thought they were new characters. I thought there was something that. Uh, that Jeff Johns had come up with, and it turns out that, no, they were part of this storyline. So he takes them out in pretty short order, takes their rings, and uh, continues on. And basically, this story is really good, and it's it's not that it's not meaty or anything, but it's basically, it's a gauntlet. You know, it, the, the whole story is basically Hal Jordan just butting heads with lantern after lantern as he's trying to make his way to Oa, and... You know they're trying to stop him, so he takes those two out. Then he comes up against Tomar too, takes him out, comes up against Chance, and really just beats the crap out of that guy, who, uh, by the way, is a very very '90s looking character. <laughs> um, he battles another guy, Creon, Hanu. Some of these guys I was familiar with, and some of these guys I was totally unfamiliar with. So I don't know if this is maybe even just the first appearance and in, in like throwaway appearances of some of these guys or not. Some of them I just don't remember ever having seen before or since. Um, he battles a guy, Graf Torin. And then probably the, the best part of the whole book is where he comes up against a lantern that's kind of a big deal in modern um, Green Lantern stories. Uh, the one who looks kind of like uh, an Amazon, her name is Boudicca, and this is the story where he takes her hand. She she basically says, if you want my ring, you're going to have to take my hand. And he goes, okay. And he just does. He just takes her hand, and and uh, there's a nasty panel. It shows him just like he's got the ring in his hand, and he's throwing her, her dismembered hand over his shoulder like, well, that's that, and uh, and moves along and just, you know, basically just tears through every lantern he, he comes across, uh, comes against uh, Kilowog, and they have a, a really good battle i mean really nice art and a lot of splash pages a lot of just big panels and big action um little moments in and out with the with the guardians appearing here and there and getting more and more you know they start out very confident that you know there's no way he'll make it here and by the end of the story they're like oh my god he's you know he's really gonna do it you know he's really on his way and what can we do and uh at the very last panel he comes up against uh, what looks to be a Green Lantern, and this is basically like the last resort, the last thing that that's going to hopefully stand in his way and keep him from Oa. And this hooded lantern pulls back his hood, 
and it's none other than one really super badass looking Sinestro. And that's how the issue ends. And, uh, wow, I really, you know, I, I've, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with the story through the Jeff Johns lens, you know, the, the yeah. whole retro thing with, uh, with the parallax entity and all that. And while, you know, while I really enjoy the new stuff with, uh, you know, by Jeff Johns and all that, you know, I'm reading both Green Lantern and Green Lantern Core. You know, I have to say that, you know, my familiarity with Green Lantern and my, my interest in it stems totally from the next issue of Green Lantern after this one, which was 50. That's where I really discovered Green Lantern. You know, I'd read a smattering of Hal Jordan stuff back in the day and always found him to be the most bland and vanilla character out there next to maybe like Barry Allen, who I also think is extremely boring. So, you know, I came on board Green Lantern and got really excited about it when, when this happened. You know, but I came on at 50, which was the issue where, by that point, Hal Jordan was a full-blown bad guy, and the ring was handed off to um, to Kyle Rayner. And that's really where I came on board, and I've always been a big Kyle Rayner fan. So to go back and read this story and see that there really aren't any seeds of the whole parallax entity thing and all that, I feel somewhat justified in the fact that I've never been comfortable with that. You know, I, I've while I like what's going on with the title today, I still wish that Hal Jordan had been left the way he was. You know, I, I liked him so much better as, you know, he, he was like the Darth Vader of the DC Universe. He had fallen to the dark side and he became a bad guy. I like that story. And, and I really wish that they hadn't backpedaled off of it and come up with this whole kind of lame excuse about, oh, he was possessed and it wasn't really his fault and all that, because you don't find any seeds at all of that in this story. I mean, this is totally Hal Jordan, and the whole thing's written from his perspective, so you're really in his head and and following his thought process, and, and I don't think it reads at all like, you know, like he was being controlled or manipulated or or anything like that. I think it totally reads as he just finally, you know flipped he just yeah. totally went over to the dark side and i like that that angle so well, much better so <laughs> well it's it's mostly a lot of you know if you kind of look at the the character today i mean green lantern rebirth was all about pumping the life back into how jordan and making him sort of the golden boy uh you know that everybody kind of thinks that he is and really kind of return him to his uh in, to his peak in a way right so i mean that i can see where you're talking about almost retroacting uh, it in where he was basically taken over by the Parallax entity. Uh, you know, I mean, they did that for a reason, to make him more of a likable character and to kind of erase that past of, oh, you know, he went evil. Because uh, that's cool that you like it, but from what I've heard, uh, when that story went down in Zero Hour, a lot of people were upset about how Jordan going kind of nuts. I mean, do you remember any of the, you know sort of hype and hysteria about it when it was actually happening? What was fan response? I, I do and I don't. I mean, because I wasn't terribly close to it, it, only in the sense that, like I say, I was never a fan of the character. So I was one of those people that basically got in on it through all the hype and, and a lot of the negativity. You know, there was so much talk about it that it got me curious. What is everybody talking about? What are so many people? Because there were a lot of people that, that were really digging it. 
as well as people, you know, the, the, the big time Hal Jordan Green Lantern fans that were really hating it. It, it seemed to be almost 50-50, at least to my recollection. So, you know, I only got into it because I, I heard so much talk about it. And when I picked up, you know, the first several issues of of the stuff with Kyle Rayner, I was just like, wow, you know, this is, to me, that was, it was finally fulfilling the idea that I always thought was really cool of this guy with this, like, ultimate weapon, you know, this ultimate power ring that I just never had thought was handled very interestingly. Suddenly it was very interesting where, you know, I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with the story, but I mean, Kyle Rayner was very different from Hal Jordan in the fact of Hal Jordan was chosen to be Green Lantern because of, you know, his fearlessness. And basically he fit a criteria that the guard guardians look for. Whereas Kyle Rayner was just, in the wrong place at the wrong time. He didn't fit any criteria. He was just a, a dude that walked down the wrong alley. And yeah. I liked that. I liked the idea that he was just an everyman, you know? And so he was almost like the, the, the Peter Parker of DC at that point. You know, he wasn't a superhero. He wasn't even a heroic person. He was just a dude. You know, yeah. he could have been you or me. And I liked that idea, and I think it made him so much more interesting as a character because he wasn't already cool or heroic or dynamic you know he wasn't you know a jet fighter pilot or you know anything glamorous he was just a guy and i think that's I, i've always liked those kind of heroes anyway you know uh, i remember uh probably the the closest parallel i could draw would be the uh, will payton version of starman had a very similar thing going on where he was just again he was the wrong you know he was in the wrong place at the wrong time got zapped by this ray that was intended for somebody else and became that version of Starman. And so, the, uh, you know, when that book got canceled, you know, I really missed that character. And so, to a certain degree, um, Kyle Rayner kind of filled that void for me, you know, as, as a character. And that was one of the reasons I, I really liked him. And I just thought he was more interesting. It was more interesting to me to see these big space adventures through his eyes than it was through Hal Jordan's eyes. Because to me, the space stuff with Hal Jordan just always seemed really dull somehow. It just wasn't spectacular like I always felt like it, it could be or should be. Whereas you suddenly take the everyman of Kyle Rayner and see it through his eyes and, you know, and, and he wasn't taking meeting new aliens and, and going to other planets, he wasn't taking it as just another day at work. He was taking it as, holy crap, I'm on another planet. I'm meeting, you know, little blue guys with three heads or whatever. You know, he was, he felt the amazement that the reader, yeah. you know, he was like, we, we could live vicariously through his reactions. And I liked that, you know, it, it gave a, a more human element to the story. At least that's how I thought. Anyway, I really enjoyed the, uh, the stuff with Kyle Rayner, and, and that's one of the things that keeps me around, you know, in the modern Green Lantern stuff, and, and one of the things I found interesting was that, you know, thank God that, you know, granted they brought Hal Jordan back, and I'm still not real happy about that, but thank God they didn't just kill Kyle, you know, granted they bumped him way, way, way to the back burner, but he is still there, and we still continue to get his story, and I'm grateful for that, because it, it's, you know, it's like being able to, you know, what is that saying? You know, have your cake and eat it too. You know, it's yeah. 
you know, I wish they had been able to pull something like that off with, say, like Spider-Man and his clone, because there were a lot of people that really liked Ben Riley, but when they brought Peter back, they killed off the other character, and I'm just grateful they didn't do that with uh, with Hal Jordan and Kyle Rayner. But anyway, that's uh, I've gone on long enough. That's Green Lantern uh, 49. Really good, uh, really good read. I enjoyed it. Another note is you kind of came in at an interesting point to Green Lantern because it was like it was a, like a transition point to where you know Hal was just kind of dying out and Kyle was just picking up the story. So I mean. Mm-hmm. You did come in at a very interesting spot. And I liked your analysis of the two different characters. I never really thought about it that way. <laughs> so, But uh, you mentioned Peter Parker and Spider-Man, and it's going to make a good transaction to my book, because I'm going to my boy, Spidey, with issue 309 of The Amazing Spider-Man. Ah. Yeah, you sent me this book. <laughs> I wondered if that was one of the ones I sent you. Yeah, it is. It's uh, written by David Michelini. Drawn by Todd McFarlane and lettered by Rick Parker. Uh, this issue starts out with Spidey kind of fighting a uh, no-name two-time hood. Uh, you know, beats the crap out of him easy. And we find out that within the first couple pages that Mary Jane Watson Parker has gone missing. She's been kidnapped. And the reason for Spidey beating the crap out of this guy is to get information. And he really doesn't know anything and Peter just kind of walks off disgruntled. Uh, he goes and kind of sits up on the top of the building, uh, thinking about, you know, how, what he's going to do, you know, his life, this, the same old kind of Parker, uh, mentality, uh, you know, goes swinging off into the New York night, and we transition to the scene where we find Mary Jane, uh, she's sitting in a dinner scene with, you know, not a really, like, supervillain looking guy, he's just a normal looking guy named Jonathan Caesar. And, uh, I guess the two have some sort of a past because, Caesar has kidnapped her because he's uh, in love with her and he wants to marry her. But uh, Mary Jane basically thinks he's insane. So, I mean, you got that going on. And uh, she is sitting at the dinner table and uh, her eyes pry that they're in this sort of room which it, it's sort of where the doors are supposed to be locked. But she finds that Caesar has left one of the doors uh, slightly open. And she ends up throwing a bucket of ice in Caesar's face, uh, distracting him. She runs for the door, but is automatically blocked off by two of Caesar's bodyguards. And uh, Caesar basically gives her the lowdown like this. It's like, okay, you can accept it, marry me, and we'll be happy. Or I'm going to take a knife to your face. It's your choice. Uh, we find Peter hanging out at the bugle, uh, feeling pretty down. Everybody's kind of getting the word that Mary Jane has gone missing. Uh, Jonah kind of still gives him the hard time telling him to go get the pictures, but in this sort of, uh, some sort of weird light, he gives his glimpse of how he may possibly care, uh, by informing that his secretary that he wants any word of Mary Jane, and, uh, she kind of asks him, well, you do kind of care, don't you? And he's like, no, it would just make a great story, and the classic Jonah personality. Uh, Peter goes and visits Robbie Robertson. Uh, kind of one of his always his uh, good friends at the Bugle. And we find out that Robbie's back has been broken by Tombstone in a past uh, spectacular Spider-Man issue, 139 to be exact. be an interesting story to read. Uh, he really kind of just feels helpless with his life. I guess the same sort of way Peter is, they kind of connect. Uh, we go off, you know, Mary Jane's still hanging out with Caesar. And now Caesar has hired two uh, two, time, two more thugs, to help him out because he has a feeling that uh, Spider-Man may be coming for Mary Jane because he knows that there's uh, this Parker, Peter Parker, Spider-Man connection somehow. 
So he hires two gentlemen by the go by the name Sticks and Stone. Uh, Stone is kind of your classic big muscular guy, not really smart. And Sticks is just this que- creepy white guy. And that's about it. He's got this magic touch with, uh, he touches anything and explodes. So, you, you know, pretty creepy looking. Uh, Spidey swaying across New York City crashes Caesar's place. Battle ensues with Sticks and Stone. He has a pretty tough time. Uh, Stone is armed pretty with a big kind of like classic 90s looking guns. But this was actually 1987, so McFarlane, I guess, was ahead of his time. Um, you know, fight. Sticks is just about to touch Peter on the face to blow him up. Uh, kind of leaves you on a cliffhanger there for a page. MJ is inside and takes a wine bottle to Caesar's face, scarring him up. And she ends up electrocuting the bodyguards because she spills a glass of water on the floor and they end up standing in it. And she ends up taking a wire and just shocking the crap out of them. We come back to the cliffhanger moment. And she just gets outside in time and basically shoots Sticks and uh, pretty much saves Spidey. And they kind of have their moments. Sticks and Stone meet their fate in prison and all is well. Uh, I like this issue quite a bit, you know, McFarlane's art, uh, from the Spawn stuff that I've read really hasn't done much for me, but I really enjoy his take on Spider-Man and New York City and just sort of the atmosphere and the setting for the character. I think it's, it is really, I mean, I can see why it would have been a big deal at the time. I mean, it, it certainly was something different that people really didn't see, and I still think even today it is, uh quite an iconic look for the character. I, I really like uh, how he... I mean, just seeing Spidey swing across the city, he puts him in all these really quirky positions uh, that just... They look very spider-like, and I, I really enjoyed that quite a bit. Plus, he draws a hot Mary Jane, and that's never bad. I mean, you know, <laughs> you got that going for you, you win me over. So, I mean, you know, good kind of fun, classic superhero story, damsel in distress... I like David Michelini's writing. I've read quite a bit of his Spider-Man stuff, and this uh, holds up to usually what I expect, what I would expect from him. So, all in all, a good issue. I, I liked his writing back uh, back then too. It's funny because I was looking at the cover of this issue as you were were talking, trying, racking my brain, trying to remember what happened in this. I didn't remember any of that because I mean I probably haven't reread other than. You know, a, a couple pre-300 issues and then, like, issue 300 itself, you know, because of the Venom story. I, I really haven't re-examined a lot of these issues in this time frame since I originally, you know, bought them, you know, coming off the stand back in the day. So I was uh, I was really curious what you would think of the uh, the McFarlane art because I, I hate to say it. I, I, I'm afraid that for me personally, a lot of this McFarlane stuff, while I thought it was awesome back then, like most everybody did, you know, thought it was just the, the most, you know, cool thing to come down the pike in comics in a, in a long, long time. I look at a lot of it now and it's not that I hate it or anything. I just look at it now and I'm like, why did I ever think that this was so whatever? You know, I mean, the only... McFarlane stuff that seems to hold up for me anymore is I still think that his run on the Hulk is just, it's great stuff. You know, it's really, really awesome stuff. And I like his really early stuff on Infinity Inc. You know, he wasn't quite as refined and didn't quite have the the trademark McFarlane style down yet, but uh, I really like that stuff too. But some of this Spider-Man stuff is really, really hit and miss with me. And just looking at the cover on this this particular issue, I just I, it doesn't 
it doesn't do it for me somehow, but I can't remember what the interior looks like on it now. It's been so long since I've read this story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wasn't amazing or anything. I'm not, no pun intended. It wasn't the, you know, the greatest <laughs> book ever, but I thought it was pretty decent. You know, not a bad kind of just quick fun read. Another thing to kind of note his artwork, uh, I, I kind of find it interesting that he does make Peter and Mary Jane and even just like the costume Spider-Man look sort of older. You know, it doesn't really have the, uh, oh, their 17, 18 feel. They do kind of appear to be in their mid-twenties and such. I mean, he does kind of give the age to the character, which would make sense because probably right around this time, the character was nearing probably about 30 years of age, uh, you know, being publishing-wise. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Well, here's something that you'll, you'll get a real kick out of is, uh, you know, running up to issue 300, you know, issue 299 and quite a number of issues prior to that were 75 cents. Well, then issue 300, of course, you know, it's the, it's the big 300 issue. It was advertised as the special 25th anniversary issue also was, you know, it was double-sized and everything, so that one's a fifty. Well, then beyond that, they snuck in you know, a 25 cent price hike. So it had previous to 300 had been 75 cents. Now with issue 301, it's suddenly a dollar, which is, you know, scandalous. You know, it went up a whole 25 cents. But then also starting with issue 304, suddenly it's bi-monthly. And I just remember back in the day buying these off the sand. And I was buying, you know, like three, four or five copies of this, you know, every time it came out, just... Because I, you know, I just, that was back in those speculation days, you know, when you tried to have your finger on the pulse of the industry and, you know, predicting what was going to be the hot book and, you know, what was going to be the super collector's item and all this. And, you know, thank God to a certain degree I was actually right with some of this McFarland stuff, you know, like number 300 and, all, you know, 299 and 300 with the first Venom and all that. But uh, I just remember this, you know, it seems funny now to think that, you know, $2 a month on a book was, was the breaking point. But I can remember that thinking, wow, you know, I don't know if I can keep buying this when it's a dollar every issue. You know, <laughs> now they're four bucks. So it just seems so funny now. But, yeah, I really I really remember that, you know, being that was quite the scandal when they went up, you know, 25 whole cents back in the day. So reading this, uh, I'm just curious, would would you uh, would, would you be interested in, in continuing to read Spider-Man from you know right around this same point, either a few issues before, or a few issues after? I mean, was it enough to whet your appetite for this era of Spider-Man? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm collecting the book anyway, so I'd like to get these issues at some point. Uh, I like the kind of late mid '80s Spider-Man, uh, especially. I'd love to kind of I know it's kind of pre this, but I'd love to kind of go back and get the Hobgoblin like saga, uh, right? I'm definitely interested in the Eric Larson run because I'm a Savage Dragon fan. Uh, you know, I like you know, like I said, I didn't mind McFarlane's art in this. I enjoyed it quite a bit, actually. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd love to read kind of Venom's first appearance and just kind of work my way up to the present. So, yeah, I definitely do want to get more issues of this. Cool. Yeah, I, I liked uh, I liked Spider-Man during this this era myself, especially right up through the. I'm not sure exactly where the whole thing started. I'm thinking somewhere in the 240s or thereabouts, right up to like uh, well, pretty much right up to almost the the 300th issue itself. There was just a lot of really great stuff that happened with Spider-Man during that time. You know, the whole Hobgoblin thing started. 
you know, he got the black costume. There was the big gang war story and, you know, Peter finally uh, popping the question to Mary Jane. You know, we got the, uh, oh, what's that big story? The uh, Craven's Last Stand. Although I've never been a huge fan of that story, it is still pretty cool. I just don't think it's the, the, the awesome thing that everybody I, I actually have those issues. Being. What, what do you think of that one? Do you like that one? Yeah, I, I have the issues, and I originally read it in trade. I just actually scored the issues for like five bucks. And I, oh, that's I, I actually think. They, I don't know. Would they actually go for something? They used to. I don't see. I don't Cause, quite cause keep up with the speculator end anymore. Like, yeah, like I, I used to. I used to really have my finger on that on that pulse, but I don't anymore. I, I usually don't care about that, but like I wanted the amazing issues because, like I said, I collect the books. I but the guy I got it from had them all for like five bucks. So I was like, oh, why not? But I, I was kind of wondering because that is a big Spider-Man story uh, in the history of the character, and I was wondering if. I, you know, those might actually go for something. So I thought that would be I, kind of I interesting. I think they might, but I'm not, like I say, I, I, I'm not familiar anymore. But I remember, you know, back in the day, they certainly did. You know, as recently as just, you know, say 10 years ago, I remember they, they were quite pricey. But whether they still are, I, I honestly couldn't tell you. As a story, I did enjoy it quite a bit. I, I thought there were some pretty interesting themes running through it. And uh, I, I just... You know, usually I never really cared for Craven as a character. Like any kind of incarcerate, any, any uh, incarnation I ever read of him, and that story kind of just changed my opinion on him altogether. Uh, I think it did for a lot of people probably. Uh, he just really became a, an interesting character in that story, and there was a lot of emotion through it. And Mike Zek's artwork is great in that. So, oh yeah, I, I enjoyed that story quite a bit. Yeah, I've always been a uh, Mike Zek fan. His, his Captain America is, you know, my Captain America to this day because that's just when I really discovered that character, it was when he was drawing it. So anytime I, you know, picture Cap in my mind's eye, that you know, it's it's his Cap. So yeah, I love uh, love some Zek Zek artwork. And that concludes another episode of Back to the Bins. Again, if you have any sort of feedback, please email the show at backtothebins at gmail.com. All feedback is appreciated. Back to the Bins is an Alec Barry, Scott Gardner production, copyright 2009. We hope that you will join us again next time and go back, back to the bins.